0: This is a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio, find us at k103.sc. Due to copyright, the music is shortened.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Global In podcast, a show where we get to dive into interesting topics on the international radar. My name is Mekhi, and I can't wait for us to explore all these different areas concerning global affairs. Together, give up we'll be venturing through numerous disciplines in search for answers to various questions and shed light on or magnify events that affect us all. I hope that this program sparks ideas and provides perspectives that may broaden your horizon on international affairs as well as other aspects. Although this has only been a glimpse, stay tuned. I hope that you'll enjoy.
2: I don't don't have that type of richness. My richness is life forever.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Global Inn podcast. My name is Mekki and this is our first episode for this season. As you can tell, and as you can all imagine, we've had a quite an eventful year. A lot has happened in 2021 and we can't cover all of it, but we can talk about something that took the world by storm. I'm joined today by Amanda who most of you remember from the from the last season and what will we be talking about today Amanda?
2: Hello, Miki. The topic of today is the Taliban with uh, regards to the situation in Afghanistan.
1: Yes, that's correct. And uh, in August of 2021, uh, the news broke that the Taliban had taken control of Afghanistan. And many see this, uh, the withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan as the the final nail in the coffin for for the government as uh, the Taliban literally swiftly advanced and took Kabul.
2: Yes. And uh, to give you some context to this, the conflict in Afghanistan has been going on for some time, and the Taliban have been present there for quite some time as well. So, if you start from the beginning, kind of, uh, Soviet troops invaded Afghanistan as part of the Cold War. And uh, under the Reagan administration, uh, U.S. support for Afghanistan, Mujahideen evolved into a centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy called the Reagan Doctrine. Uh, in which U.S. via uh, CIA provided military and economic support to anti-communist resistance movements in Afghanistan, but also Angola and Nicaragua. And so the Mujahideen fighters who received U.S. support successfully pushed out the Soviet troops and emerged as a force to be reckoned with during the civil war. And in 1994, the Taliban a mainly Pashtun group from the Kandahar region. Also fighting the civil war drew its members from the successful and experienced Mujahideen.
1: And it wasn't long until they actually came into power. So uh, by 1996, the Taliban had seized control of most of Afghanistan and proclaimed it an Islamic emirate with what some describe using harsh interpretations of Islamic Sharia law. And following the September 11 attacks, as we all know, the Taliban refused to cooperate with the Americans in in the capture of al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden, who they uh, said was, according to them, responsible for the September 11 attacks. And the U.S. troops in the north then swept into Kabul with heavy air support from the U.S. Air Force, driving out the Taliban back into the mountains where they then began their 20-year-long insurgency up until today. And in August of this year... The Taliban swiftly swept through the the country like wildfire. They took region after region, city after city, and ultimately they captured Kabul in 10 days. Mm. And they lowered the red, black and green flag of of the the Republic of Afghanistan and then they hoisted the white one. And if you actually Google Afghanistan now, Wikipedia will actually show you that it's an Islamic emirate and they will show you the white flag instead of the former Afghan flag, which is quite interesting. So the future of Afghanistan and the Afghan people is quite uncertain, but who exactly are the Taliban and do we understand them?
2: To help us understand these complex questions, uh, today on this episode on Afghanistan is our wonderful guest Florian Kuhn, a senior researcher of peace and conflict studies at Gothenburg University and formerly worked in Berlin, Hamburg and College of Europe.
1: Researching the political organization of violence within and outside the state structures, with focus on Afghanistan, Central Asia, and the Middle East. He's also the co-editor of the Journal of Intervention and State Building. Warm welcome, Florian.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
2: Was that a fair introduction?
1: I think so. (laughs) Lovely.
2: (laughs) Great. So, um, the primary goals of the Taliban were to secure Taliban-controlled areas in the 90s and to disarm rivaling militia and to enforce Islamic Sharia law. And the focus on Sharia law was their benefit because it provided a clear proposition for what the future should look like in Afghanistan. And this is something that their rivals had failed to do. And when the Taliban suddenly seized control, they implemented an Islamic governance in Afghanistan. Florian, what can you tell us about the ideology of the Taliban and what are their goals?
0: Right. Um, I think with history with a, a bit of history um, in the background, the Taliban's advantage um, was Sharia, as you've right, rightly pointed out. Um, but at the same time the Mujahideen they were fighting at that point would also um, basically argue that Sharia was the their point of orientation. Um, only the Taliban were viewed as less corrupt and um, lesser bandits. Um, That was what basically brought them the support of of, um, at least a large part of the predominantly rural population. That is people living in the countryside. Um, Many of the people in the countryside um, have a moral code or have an an ethical orientation that's very much oriented to what is called Pashtunwali um, and different variants of Pashtunwali, which is a, a tribal code. Um, regulating social interactions um, in the absence, um, if you want, of a state. Because um, in many of those rural areas, the state doesn't and hasn't played um, an impactful role on people's lives. So the Taliban came basically in to to prevent um, uh, bribery and um, blackmail um, and um, impunity in terms of violence, um, because they were held to be relatively reliable um, and obviously oriented towards Sharia. Once they had taken um, Kabul after 1996, and this is where much of the controversy comes from, they imposed relatively harsh um, Islamist-inspired rules, and the, 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 city, the city population um, was much more opposed to the Taliban than people in the countryside, because they were freer and more liberal, and obviously um, also, in many cases, more educated.
2: Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. What would you say are the goals of the Taliban?
0: The goals of the Taliban right now, um, and that's what they have been fighting for the last 20 years, was basically to get rid of the foreign occupation. In that sense, they are following a nationalist ideology, which also puts them um, at odds with the Islamic State which is called IS, ISK, Islamic State Khorasan province, which is basically dating back to, a, to an ancient um, period um, when large areas of Afghanistan and what is now Pakistan were called Khorasan. For IS, they have a global, all-encompassing understanding of, of Islam, where the community of believers is not confined to the to the boundaries of a national state. The Taliban and that was the case always. Um, Afghanistan is the point of reference so they're in that sense a bit inward looking and, and they, they want to organize and govern Afghanistan but not beyond which as I said um, puts them at odds um, and makes them the enemies really of IS.
1: Mm. It's really interesting that there's an Islamic civil war with the Emirates of Afghanistan with Taliban being in control and the Islamic states who are both Muslims and, you know, different schools of thought. Florian, the Taliban regrouped in, in 2002, since the NATO invasion in the early 2000s, distinguishing them from the old Taliban, from, as we saw, that to control in 1996. Uh, they rebranded, shifting focus from controlling personal morality to their, to their claim for independence from invaders and Westerners, or infidels as they refer to it as. The neo-Taliban have promised not to impose as strict chariot laws as before. So, is there a dichotomy between the old Taliban in the 90s, who were in control, and the new Taliban who seized control three months ago, or is it the same t- old Taliban just with better PR?
0: Well, it's it's. Uh, I don't see um, old and new Taliban. There was the the continuities. Um, I would say outweigh um, the ruptures and breaks. Um, first, in 2002, it wasn't a new organization, but it was the old organization that realized that there was quite a bit of um, discontent with the Western intervention. They lay still, they were in Pakistan, and they regrouped, they needed to reorganize, and then they started a campaign that was um, you know, slow at first, very regional at first and then became ever more powerful with the rising discontent over those last two decades um, when the violence that the international intervention brought particularly to the countryside and the corruption that the international intervention brought particularly to the capital and political elites led to a, a large support for anything other than the government. So the Taliban really capitalized on, on popular discontent with the situation as it unfolded after 2001 and which the Western intervention, even though many of them, many of the international interventions um, leadership were aware of the problem, but they were um, unable to solve it. Now the new Taliban as, as you have called them or the current Taliban still have the moral code that they used to use or, or orient themselves towards. Um, Only they are more aware that that the situation in terms of politics of surrounding countries, of international politics, and also regarding their own population has changed. Now, the population in Afghanistan is quite different than the population in the 1990s. It's much more educated, it's much younger, partly it's much richer. There's digital communications and social media. Uh, The the society is also more connected internally. Mm On the other hand, the Taliban are relatively clear about their lack of funding to keep up essential services that their population now expects. That's not only food and and other supplies, which are in dire need currently, but that's also basics like like electricity, water, telecommunications. Mm. Um, Without external funding, um, the Taliban will be unable to finance these services. So they are more aware that they need to have partners outside the country, which they certainly didn't necessarily think they needed in the 1990s. And with the politics towards Osama bin Laden, they grossly miscalculated and risked their own existence. Right now, it seems that they have understood that they need to be, you know, more friendly to demands from the West um, mm. or from, from foreign partners and donors, um, which is going to be difficult anyway. But at the same time, um, they seem to try and acquire a normalization which will eventually lead to them being recognized as official government um, of Afghanistan, which is not yet the case.
2: Yeah. Um, What role do you think that social media will play in this and uh, how will they adopt to social media being a very important actor in some way?
0: That's, that's very difficult to say. The Taliban are not very good at social media. Um, <laughs> there's different reasons for that. Unlike Ayat, for example, in Syria who filmed and broadcast um, terrorist attacks right. that they did on, on vehicles and stuff, the Taliban have, have, have never run a social media campaign like that. Um, one of the reasons, of course, was that they were afraid of being tracked with their mobile phones and subject to attack by the American military. Now, my assumption is they will try to catch up to use social media um, for their own purposes. At the same time, for ideological reasons, they are very distrustful of social media, but they, they realize that the population is using it and that it is a fact of life. Mm. Um, that would be very difficult to disband. So whether they'll manage to actually, um, you know, Get from from zero to 100 mm-hmm. um, in in a very short time frame is, is is in doubt, but that might be the strategy that they're trying um, to follow. At the same time, we see that the Taliban's communication strategy um, is much broader. It's it's about it's using hearsay. It's using um, other information campaigns that are often more adjusted to the situation in the countryside so the taliban do get their message across and at the moment they're also capitalizing a lot of the image that they still have from the 1990s so as it looks they're currently not able to provide security but there is still a deterrent threat um, towards bandits and other people that they would be able to enforce security so currently they're still Using this kind of image to to basically deter people from violence or from criminality, for that matter. But it remains to be seen how long that is going to last. If it turns out that the Taliban aren't all powerful in Afghanistan
1: themselves, that yeah, makes sense actually. But when it comes to social media, you know, in the day and age that we live in now, we've seen we've all seen the the footage from Kabul Airport with people clinging onto a US C-17 or, or a US yeah airplane and falling from it from the sky hmm. and that was not in the favor of the taliban let's just put it that way when yeah. when that actually happened and was spread across instagram and now this and all sorts of different uh tabloids but what i want to ask is you mention a lot the the parallel between living in urban s- societies in afghanistan and living in the countryside does the Taliban focus on one more than the other, or do they have power over one more than the other? The Taliban are essentially,
0: well, no, I shouldn't say essentially, but I would say they are predominantly a rural movement. Because what they do in terms of governance is provide mediation um, when there are property and other disputes and they're relatively just in the way they um, they they provide rulings and, and, and mediate society's demands or society's conflicts. So they have a, a real social function to fulfill um, in the countryside, and that is where they had been established even during the Western intervention for many years, differently in different regions, um, but uh, a force to be reckoned with all the more. At the same time the Taliban were of course aware that the economic power um, and the political power lies within the bigger cities. So the Taliban were always aware that their rule would only be complete when they when they conquered and controlled the cities, particularly as the spoils of the cities or the, the in other words, more technically speaking, the revenue that 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 can be collected in the cities, it is much higher than in the countryside. Um, So if if they really want to be a state and be able to enforce their ideology, which obviously for ideological reasons, they cannot limit to the countryside. Right. It makes no sense to say people should be moral in the countryside, but not in the cities. And Mm -hmm. hence we abstain from ruling the cities. So their aim logically needs to be to control the whole country and to enforce the moral ideas. That said, it's going to create problems for them um, because they're certainly supported in the countryside. They're certainly supported by parts of the of the city population or the urban population. But resistance organized as well as, you know, uh, low scale resistance, everyday resistance, which is not necessarily violent, but doesn't help them achieve their goals or actually um, undermines their goals as well is going to be, ex- should be expected in the cities predominantly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so they're not, they haven't um, started an easy task of ruling Afghanistan.
1: Mm. It's going to be a challenge for them, definitely.
2: Yeah. And Moving. for anybody else, as we have seen. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Moving on to the structure of the Taliban.
1: Yeah, so we talked about them ruling, and obviously structures is the main point. So the leader of the Taliban, Haibatullah Akhundzada, the current leader, he heads a council that oversees a dozen different commissions in charge of things like health, education, military, finance. And below these commissions or cabinets are local officials or local leaders in each region that are in charge of everyday services. Some may argue that the Taliban have established a parallel state with uh, former Ashraf Ghani uh, and undermining the interim government that was previously led by well from 2001 up until 2014 by Hamid Karzai in a as some people call a massively fraudulent election and then after 2014 up until uh, August this year Ashraf Ghani so is is there sort of a parallel state with some people still clinging on to Ashraf Ghani's Af- Afghanistan and some people in afghan or some afghans uh, accepting this parallel parallel government parallel governance that the Taliban have imposed now
0: well, if anything, the parallelity has ended when the Ashraf Ghani government collapsed, and the Taliban have taken over those institutions, like in the health sector, um, where some of the old, that is, the the Islamic Republican institutions, still continue to work. Others, they have taken over completely. Um, As far as I can see, uh, with the with the exception of of smaller groups, the Afghan National Army has collapsed completely. Some of the police is still in place, but very much Taliban controlled or they've just joined the Taliban and, and, you know, changed sides. So it's currently I don't think we can currently speak of a parallel um, of two parallel states. What happened before when the when the ar government was still in place, the Taliban did not amount to a parallel state even though they would like to be seen that way the taliban's capacity and competence really as i said is on is on local issues it is about um you know mediating conflicts in society and and moral questions where 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 they basically represent something that people many people in the countryside believe anyway, because it it comes out of tradition. So even their interpretation of of Islam is not necessarily informed by Islamic scriptures predominantly, but it is also or at least some argue to to a bigger extent even. But 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 in any case, it's very much influenced by traditional moral understandings. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not necessarily Islamic in a scripture sense. Now. The Taliban don't have a government in the sense that they um, have hierarchical decisions that are taken somewhere in the center and then disseminated down and implemented by people somewhere in the periphery. But For the Taliban, they have this, this council and this council structure is relatively democratic because many people get to have their say if you consider a structure that, that excludes women as democratic at all. But it is a relatively consultative and not a dictatorial structure. It is, of course, still authoritarian. However, what was an advantage for the Taliban in their time as resistance movement was that they were pretty flexible in implementation. And each local commander could decide for himself how far they would want to go implementing these rulings or these ideas. They could always claim that local circumstances didn't allow to do that. So there was a bit of flexibility for each of those decentralized decision makers. Now that they have a state, it becomes much more complicated um, if they have uneven governance. And that's what we see right now. We see strict Sharia rules enforced in some places and a very lax and even permissive um, environment in other places. Depending on the cloud, and on the willingness to engage these moral understandings or to to, to enforce these moral understandings by different commanders in different regions. That, of course, doesn't mean the leadership is isolated, but it is in a constant process of negotiating um, what needs to be done between the periphery or the more more far away regions and, and the capitals um so we have we have this process um where currently the Taliban as a as a whole as a group as a movement um uh, needs to turn into some kind of career, coherent governance system um which i don't think they have achieved yet
1: that's you know it's a consensus that it's a challenge for them to to rule afghanistan after august but it's going to be surprising for some people to hear that it's more democratic than authoritarian in the way that they have their council and haibatullah So it was interesting for me, at least,
0: Well, I mean, don't use that very lightly. I mean, um, democratic in this case means it is consultative. It's not one person making the decisions, but there is a council structure and the councils listen to each other and they try to come to a common agreement um, about what to do. That's not necessarily democratic in the sense that it involves the people who are subject to these decisions. So it is by no way democratic in the sense as a liberal understanding would have it that individuals have rights and obligations, right, right. but also they have a say in political decisions, hmm. because that is certainly something that the Taliban don't accept. Um, they're, they're not accepting even even um, expressions of opinion, as we have seen in hmm. their treatment of public demonstrations um, where they have used used force because they find it absolutely illegitimate that somebody um, would would go to the street to demonstrate um, for a certain social issue. Um, because after all, they claim um, to be divinely legitimated mm. and um, also to be uh, divinely superior in the sense that they know what is in line with the the religious teachings. Mm. Um, so anybody who's basically resisting or contradicting their rulings, um, would in this sense automatically be a heretic, which is of course a problem because you can never negotiate political issues or political questions when everybody who is a, who is an opponent or only holds a different opinion is is already a heretic um, so so here is a here is a problem for them to to find out how they will deal with plurality, which uh, obviously Afghanistan society is, is really plural. Um, but this needs to find a way to be channeled in the political system. And that's not one of the strengths of the Taliban. Mm. So in that, in that sense, they're absolutely not democratic. Just to clarify that.
2: Florian, we can agree that war has a price tag for the groups fighting in it. And it's unbelievably expensive Iraq, an oil-rich OPEC country, suffered from recession and famine in the 90s due to the eight-year Iran-Iraq war and US sanctions, which show just how expensive it is. And uh, the Taliban, however, (laughs) are not rich in oil and have fought this war for decades. Where do the Taliban get their money and how do they fund this war?
0: Fighting a war like the Taliban did doesn't really require a lot of money. The logistical problems and the the cost structure of the United States um, military involvement in Afghanistan is several dimensions larger than what the Taliban had to do. What the Taliban need um, is, is food and um, supplies for their fighters, but they don't have Uh, very sophisticated and hence expensive organizational structure nor do they have um, sophisticated and expensive equipment so for the Taliban fighting this kind of guerrilla war wasn't really extremely expensive and what they collected from farmers from the drug trade but also from from controlling several trade routes plus support from outside from from other states that would support them um, would suffice to keep up this resistance campaign. Now that they are in office, so to speak, having taken over Afghanistan in full, hmm. um, their, their requirements in terms of financial sup- supplies, um, that is the sheer amount of money that they need to work with, much higher than uh, what they needed before. And that's another challenge that they're facing because it's not foreseeable or likely that they will be able to manage a budget. The Taliban, um, overall speaking, are good at, um, you know, driving mot- motorcycles and they're good at shooting, but they're not necessarily good at running a finance ministry or a central bank. <laughs> um, so many of these problems that are that are actually mounting right now, um, an existential threat for, for society, in fact, I don't really see um, a way the Taliban could manage and and, and turn this around. Mm. Um, so Running a state is immensely more complex and costly yeah.
2: um,
0: as compared to running a resistance um, campaign. Mm. So in that sense, the Taliban are in trouble. At the same time the Taliban aren't in that much trouble financially because they still control the drug trade. now they control the drug trade in in full um, and they control most of other trade because they now are territorially controlling border crossings, and, and, and streets. So if they tax what's all the goods that come into Afghanistan, they will have sufficient funds um, to actually get this state going. It's not going to be an extremely rich state. It's not going to be a state that has a lot of money to spare to build roads and infrastructure. But that's not something that the Taliban have in mind anyway. But it is going to be sufficient to run everyday affairs and to fund um, and equipped, equip their, uh, their security service, which is basically the promise that they gave the society or the population because they basically said, we're going to end corruption and banditry and we're going to make sure that everybody is secu- secure where they are. Um, and to finance that, I think the funds that they will be able to generate are, if not sufficient, but they are okay to do that. So they're not going to be extremely rich and they won't be able to spend a lot on extra training and all that kind of stuff but also we need to consider that they have inherited so to speak a lot of equipment from the western intervention that was left behind which they will now start either using themselves or which they will sell for cash mm. um so so there they have they have several sources of income finally they have uh, licenses that they are seemingly willing to adhere to for raw materials um particularly these licenses were were bought by China and one of the one of the hopes of the Taliban um leadership is that China is going to invest into exploitation of those raw materials um and if they do that's another source of income for the Taliban
1: well the belt and road initiative has reached afghanistan that's that's amazing you know when you said uh, Amanda, when he said that um, they drive motorcycles, shoot guns and sell drugs, uh, I'd instantly thought of, is this the Taliban or is it Sons of Anarchy? I couldn't distinguish between them, but it sounded almost like a cartel, kind of.
0: Well, I mean, um, as I said, I, I'm obviously this is a. I, I said this slightly chokingly, but there's a, there's a grain of truth in it in the sense that the demands that a resistance campaign has towards a movement are radically different from what running a big state demands from a movement in terms of organization, in terms of specialization, in terms of segmentalization of tasks. And all of that is as far as we can see. And as far as experience teaches us with the Taliban's earlier stint in power. After all, this is a group that has been in power for several years. And if we look at their records from then, it doesn't seem that they have a lot of competence there. Um, Simply speaking, it's not only a question of capacity, but it is also a question of competence. Mm. Now, if we assume and I think there's reason to assume that several in the old state apparatus have acquired quite a bit of competence over the last 20 years. If the Taliban managed to integrate them to work with them then they may profit from this kind of education advances that have taken place over the last two decades. If they alienate or send home or even kill people who have worked for the former government, who is going to take those places in terms of competence? Likely not many. And that's, that's my point. The Taliban have, have to integrate what is there in the apparatus but currently in their ideological seal, they don't seem to be open to integrate other voices um, who are not necessarily core Taliban mm. because out of experience, they do not trust them. So navigating this tension is 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 a, is a difficult problem,
1: of course. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So in a New York Times op-ed, the Taliban attempted to clear up misconceptions, stereotypes and rumors that the West usually has about Sharia-led governments. Uh, and in that op-ed, it stated that they want to build an Islamic system that grants rights to women that is obviously granted by Islam. And from the right of education to the right of work are all protected, is what it said. Uh, And there are some areas in Afghanistan, as you correctly mentioned, that are under Taliban control, which young girls do go to school, but not in all regions, so not everywhere. It's sort of a decentralized government where some people let them go to school and enjoy freedoms that in, for example, Kandahar or Mazar-e-Sharif probably wouldn't depending on the person who is in charge of that region.
2: Florian, would you say that the Taliban is a decentralized form of government? Is it adopting a federalist approach to show leniency or is, that, is this a manifestation of anarchy and chaos where each local Taliban has his own agenda and own set of rules and governance?
0: I wouldn't call it chaos, but it's certainly um, also not a federalized system by design. It's maybe a federalized system by default. Um, And that's what I tried to express earlier, where the Taliban are unable to hierarchically impose a fixed and unitarized set um, of rules to all the provinces. In that sense, they are depending and dependent on their local placeholders or local commanders actually make the decision which kind of rule to implement and which not to implement. In fact, how, how to interpret the rulings that come from the central Shura government. So um, it remains to be seen whether there is going to be tensions between regional power holders who might have economic incentives to actually be relatively independent because that allows them to, to thrive um, independently or whether they all adhere to the, to the normative submission to the prime leadership. And that's something which is very difficult because we don't know which kind of design the Taliban have in mind. Um, the Taliban make up the rules as they go along. And um, in that sense, they have a, adva- the advantage of being pragmatic and to being adaptable to changing circumstances. If they realize something doesn't work, they try something else. But at the same time, the question is if they are able to create and um, establish the coherence um, that state governance actually requires. Um, And that's really something where it's way too early to, to say what's going to happen because currently the Taliban are struggling to guarantee people's survival. They have a a huge famine crisis coming. They have a huge economic crisis that they need to manage. And at the same time, they're struggling to get security under control. There are different obviously anecdotal um, reports that that we hear from different regions where the security situation doesn't seem under control of the Taliban at all. Um, So it is by no means the case that the Taliban as of yet are fully controlling Afghanistan. Mm. Um, one of the reasons is that they came into power too quickly. They didn't expect to be in power so quickly themselves, so they were a bit um, surprised from from how I interpret some of their some of their public statements. But at the same time, it was a huge challenge for them in ve- relatively short time be able to control the situations in the big cities.
2: Mm. Okay, so taking a look into the future or maybe guessing. What? (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) What influence will the Taliban have on global politics uh, in the future, and how does the future for Afghanistan look with them in the driver's seat? Look into the crystal
1: ball. if,
0: (laughs) If if you throw a dice, which numbers will you get? One through six. Right, and that's exactly the point. We are talking about a huge variety of scenarios that are likely or not so likely to different degrees um, it's extremely difficult to I mean it's it's as Mark Twain as Mark Twain said he says predictions are very difficult to make especially when they concern the future so that's a general rule but in a case where we don't really know much about what's happening and I, I will explain on several levels what that means for Afghanistan it's practically impossible and it would not It would also not be serious to, to actually make such predictions. The reasons why it is very difficult to speculate or look into the future is that we know relatively little about the decision-making procedures mm. um, and the forces that influence decision-making within the Taliban. That's point number one. Point number two is after so many people, Westerners Um, non-Westerners, but also population who worked with Western news outlets and also Eastern news uh, news outlets have left the country. We know relatively little what's happening in the country as a whole. We have, as I said, anecdotal reports from different regions, but no comprehensive picture about what's going on. Um, The third point is that we don't know exactly how the neighboring countries on which the Taliban depend are influencing and are actually developing a policy about what to do with the Taliban. Mm. So there have been relatively friendly messages from all sides who kind of indicated that they wouldn't fight the Taliban, but accept them as a reality. But it is by no means clear that this is going to stay that way once their interests are extremely violated by the Taliban. And that may concern, of course, the Central Asian states. It may, of course, um, concern Iran. It may, of course, uh, and predominantly, predominantly concern Pakistan. But in the wake of Pakistan, obviously, China is a huge player. So there is a number of influences from within and from outside, which are extremely difficult um, to navigate. And I haven't even mentioned the dynamics of the economic and humanitarian situation right now, which obviously is very hard to predict as well. We don't know um, how serious the economic problem is, Mm. whether there is going to be a full collapse of the economic system or if there is a chance of recovery. Um, And at the same time, we don't know how dire and serious the situation with goods and, and and supplies in Afghanistan really is reports say it's really dangerous it's really it's really problematic, basically endangering millions of people who run out of supplies, but it's very difficult to say actually how how big this problem is
2: Florian, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great having you on.
0: It was a pleasure.
1: <laughs> we definitely understand the Taliban. A lot more now. We understand their ideology and we hope that our listeners do too.
2: Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. The conflict in Afghanistan can be traced back to the Cold War affecting the region till this day. The Taliban, who emerged from the ashes of this conflict, have once again ended up in the spotlight on the international stage. But what now?
1: The Taliban. An Afghan, Islamic, Sharia-led group who drive motorcycles, shoot guns and sell drugs? Or the Taliban, an Islamic, Sharia-led group of Afghans who will once and for all bring stability to Afghanistan? Future relations with Iran, Pakistan and China seem way more favourable than the West. That was it for this episode. And to all of you listening, you're more than welcome to write to us on our Facebook page, The Global Inn, if you have any questions or would like to discuss the episode. I've been your host, Mickey,
2: And I've been Amanda. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
0: You've just heard a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.